Hey there, and welcome back to the Sounds Curious Podcast. The podcast for you, our adventurous listeners. And adventurous listeners, I am so sorry it took me much longer than a week to get this second half of Voices Found to you. It was a lively evening back in January. There were a lot of people on stage, and as you'll hear from the second half, even a few people from the audience ended up getting up on stage, so much, much fun was had by all, except in post-production. Having so many microphones and um, so much dialogue going around them, uh, it was really difficult to master this audio for the podcast. Um, I was taken to task by a few friends for not putting more compression on the last episode. Well, in doing that, of course, in any post-production, the more we do to the audio, the further it is from the original, and certainly things don't sound perfect when we're in the room. So I made an aesthetic choice to try and keep as close to the original as I possibly could, which I realized made some of the speech a little harder to distinguish. So I really tried to go that extra mile on this round and bring down some of those really explosive loud sounds and raise up some of the very soft sustained sounds so that you can hear everything a little more clearly. Now that said, There is a lot of improvisation at the very end and in the middle of this next round, and some uh, screams and sudden noises are heard. So general warning, if you are listening to some of the improvisations, you might have a jump scare. Um, They were certainly really interesting when you were in the room, but if you're driving or on uh, public transit and you don't want to jump out of your seat in front of your fellow passengers, just be warned in the musical sections once or twice there are some very sudden loud noises. But I think you will find that all that effort was truly worth it because it was a really interesting discussion of this very particular vocal practice as Uta Wasserman talks about in the second half. But she was really much more interested in the extremes of vocal expression rather than thinking of her operatic voice or her trained voice as her primary instrument. She was much more interested in exploring the emotions that could be carried in the voice, the cultural and historic implications of some kinds of vocalizations and even the ways in which vocalizations of a particular kind she talks about some parties that she was at in Paris um, in her youth uh, these things can really shape our notions of the human soundscape if you will and the voice being such a primary instrument of a primary mode of expression for humans. I love that these extremes of expression are represented in this collective and sometimes individual, but in uh, Voices Found, the collective process of 
singing or vocalizing more accurately together in these ways. So it's a very small community of vocalists who choose this. There's a little discussion in this half about that. Nonetheless, I find it very compelling, and certainly for the Sounds Curious audience, this is one of the more obscure forms of sound art, of of improvisation, of free jazz improvisation, if you will, that um, we will ever get to discuss in the series. So, without further ado, we are not going to do any business in this episode. We're just going to get straight to the second half of the evening, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. The final improvisation, it must be said, is with everyone who came to the concert. So, not just the audience, uh, not just the performers, but the audience joined in and vocalized together and it was really quite a moving experience so back to voices found the second half of our evening back in january i will say that in coming weeks we're going to explore more of the recordings and feature some of the artists that have appeared here at the willow's nest which is the new collective performance platform art space and production space and also community building venue here in Berlin. And if you're curious about some of the artists we featured and some of the artists that we will be featuring in upcoming Sounds Curious episodes, go check out the website at willowsnest.org, W-I-L-L-O-W-S-N-E-S-T. And we have links to that on the BanshooMedia.com site, where our show notes are. We have links to it on the Improvised Alchemy page, because it is the Improvised Alchemy Collective's space in the world, our physical manifestation, if you will. And, of course, you can always find more information about it and everything on the show at BanshooMedia.com. We have a new link to the Sounds Curious podcast on the willowsnest.org page as well. So we are well networked in cyberspace. Anyway, without further ado, Voices Found Part 2. Chris Tonelli hosts an evening of vocal improvisers discussing free jazz improvisation, extra normal singing, as he calls it, for the last 65 years in a wonderful January evening in Berlin. Reminds me that there's... That reminds you of something! Yeah, it reminds me of an apology I make in the book, uh, that there's uh, so many different projects uh, that David's done over his career uh, that don't get addressed in the book. But uh, in Chapter 4, it's called Vocal Village, The Rise of a New Transnational Vocal jazz community, and the Vocal Village project was, was one of the projects I do uh, discuss in the book. Um, I'll, I'll read a section from this chapter now, and then, uh, then pose some questions to the panel here. Um, it's the, the section is titled, David Moss's Transnational Vision. It starts, there's no singer mentioned in this book that's purely a free jazz vocalist. Most musicians perform in more than one musical genre and work in more than one musical community or scene. I begin this chapter with a singer who has shifted from working predominantly in jazz genres and spaces 
to developing a career split largely between jazz-identified spaces and new music and operatic spaces, David Moss. Moss's career is an important one to trace in the context of this volume because of the emphasis he's placed on creating both spaces for trans-generic and trans-cultural exchange between singers from various traditions and projects that perform transnational and transcultural collaboration for listening publics. While many singers' projects asserted that voice-only free jazz could be and was a space for transnational and or transcultural collaboration and exchange, Moss has pursued this in a particularly ambitious and consistent manner. In 1989, Moss organized a vocal quintet he called Direct Sound. This would be the first of several voice-only or nearly voice-only quartets or quintets he would organize that would stage the spectacle of the existence of a transnational free jazz vocal scene. Direct Sound brought together Dutch vocalist Gretchen Bima, West Coast American vocalist Anna Homler, East Coast American vocalist Shelley Hirsch, and Catlin vocalist slash composer Carl, Carl Santos, combining five vocalists who all worked substantially with unconventional vocal sounds. And then I have to skip a bunch of sections where I talk about all of those figures. And then I continue, Direct Sound's unmistakable transnational composition announced that interest in this unconventional vocal work was geographically widespread, and the connections across these distances were established and flowing. Significantly, the quintet staged concerts in 1989 on either side of the Atlantic. One of these concerts occurred as part of an event that's notable in the context of this chapter for the way it staged both a concert of the ensemble, but also broke the ensemble down into smaller units to support a six-day vocal festival called Urban Aboriginal Vocal. Uh, that began on October 11th, uh, with two days of workshops led by Hirsch. The second day of the festival also featured a concert with Moss in uh, voice and percussion duo with Peter Holling Hollinger, uh, Susan De Him performing a piece for voice and tape, and Gambian singer uh, Buba Jaume. The third night featured Jaume again, as well as a piano performance by Santos and a set by Hirsch's duo with David Weinstein. On the fourth night, Direct Sound performed, adding Phil Minton and De Him to the group in place of Hollinger. Finally, the final two days of the festival involved a two-day workshop led by Moss. The blend of free jazz, new music, and Gambian traditional singing stands as an early example of Moss's desire to create spaces where singing could be explored from a transnational and transcultural perspective. Um, so I wonder if you could reflect back on this event uh, and about um, these, these two ideas, transcultural, transnational, and maybe we can add transgeneric uh, improvisation that night and in other spaces. Um, were you improvising across traditions in this context? Uh, was that important to you? What was your vision? Oi. <laughs> I'm at, I ask, that, that's part of the process of ethnographic interviewing. You're, you're asking people a lot of questions. Uh, you're asking them uh, to remember things that were a long time ago. And they all, they all start by saying, no, I, I don't have much memory of that. And then I remember everything. If you coax them enough, they, uh, they, they come back. I remember back. everything. <laughs> it was only 30 years ago. Well, you have to understand a little bit that 30 years ago was definitely 30 years ago. And what that means is we didn't talk anything about transnational, trans this, trans that. Nobody talked about it. Nobody knew about it. We didn't think about it. It didn't exist for us. What existed for us was trying to find forms that hadn't been yet solidified. We were trying to find groupings of people who wanted to try things together, who had an openness or a willingness to work in a way that had not been established. Mm -hmm. That was the thing that was talked about. And that was consequently that some people didn't want to do this. There were people I would have loved to have sung with, 
at that time who were not either able, willing, or desirous of being in an unclassifiable format, i.e., solos, duos, trios, quartets, quintet, let's go. It's an undescribable, uh, how can you call it, genre. There is no genre there, there's only this mixture, right? Uh, so there was kind of, in some way, an interesting compromise going on. The people that I, I would have loved to bring together, with, since I, I, I was lucky, I had, I was given certain power and certain power. I was given the the chance to organize some groups. Mm-hmm. Someone said, "David, here's five thousand Deutschmarks. Bring a group of five singers to here." I said, oh, "Wow, I can put five singers together. Oh, I'd like to have ten. Sorry, we don't have money for ten." We have money for five, you know. But if you can get ten to come for half price, that's okay. Then we can have ten now. So I have five, and uh, I would have loved to put a certain group together. But those people were unable to come together. Either they didn't want to, or they couldn't, or it wasn't appealing to them, you know, to be in that in that in that format. So therefore, I had to find people who wanted it that I wanted to sing with. I didn't. I, mean, I wanted to challenge myself, and I wanted to have some pleasure. Uh, and I wanted it to be challenging for the audience. That was always a, comp- a component of my uh, desire. To say to the audience, hey, you people are intelligent human beings. I'm not going to give you a cooked meal here and tell you what everything is on the plate. I have a lot of stuff. We have a lot of ideas. You finish up the structure. You decide what sauce is going on it. You, as a listener, make a format that it appeals to you. That was always my wish, that there was a kind of a back-and-forth structural question going on. What is it we're seeing? Oh, that's what I'm seeing. Oh, that's what I hear. Oh, that's what it is. I didn't know that it was an active uh, questioning, listening thing. So that was, that was how those events come. They were never ideal. I remember, I don't, I don't think I'll give away a horrible secret. Freke Bama, a Dutch improviser from the, pretty much the jazz, free jazz scene. A wonderful person, extremely sweet, incredible voice. I, I wanted her to come on this tour, and I only found out when I met her in Amsterdam, and we had to get on the first plane going to wherever the next gig was, that she, she couldn't fly. And she refused to fly. Uh, and I said, Freke, why didn't you tell me this? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, we, we have to fly. We have a gig left tomorrow night in Ljubljana and we're in Amsterdam, you know, and uh, uh, she said, if, if I fly, I, I immediately faint on the airplane. I faint. I, 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 I'm finished, you know. Said, okay, well, we'll sit together, two of us, and you can faint and you'll fall on one of us and it will be fine, you know, no problem. And she said, okay, for the group, I'll do it for the group. <laughs> but she did it and she fainted. And we held it. And but that was that was the best part of it. And this, the worst part of it was when we got to the gig. Actually, the first gig. She said, "David, you know that before I every, before I do a solo, I always faint." <laughs> I said, what do you mean? You always faint and you fall fall in Ombach before you do a solo." Said, yes, I'm sorry. It's the way I am. You know, it's my constitution. It's my body. I can't, it's, I can't control, I'm always good, I go on stage, but before, just before I faint, you know? <laughs> I said, I mean, I'm like an American improviser, like, I don't give a shit about people who 
<laughs> you gotta do your thing, you know? You gotta do your thing. You gotta go on stage, you gotta be strong, you gotta have the camera together, you gotta like go for it, you know? I don't wanna know that you're gonna faint before the gig. I don't really wanna know that, you know? But, but okay. So I said, okay, Freyti, you can faint before the gig, we'll take care of you, no problem. And then she would, she would, we'd, have, we'd have like a, a sofa, and she would fall down. <laughs> it, was not, it was not bullshit, she would just be unconscious, you know? Yeah. And then like, like five minutes before it was her solo, you touch her, she would, okay, match, boom, and she was like, and she was great, you know? But so what I'm saying is uh, you never know what will happen, you never know about the ideal formation, but it, the idea of challenge, the idea of mixing human frailty and strength, the idea of presenting mixtures that were never seen before, that were never done or known before, uh-huh. has always appealed to me. That's always been important. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, and there's, instead of David Moss's transnational vision, maybe I should alter that title a little <laughs> bit. Um, but that's one of the things that I think gets performed. I started this chapter by talking about a singer named Tania. Mm-hmm. And how, there's a quote from her about how when she started, she just couldn't find other people that were doing this in the, in the 60s. Um, and, and obviously the 80s was a very different time, right? There was a lot of documentation by that point. There were a lot of improvisers um, getting together in these kinds of formations. And I think for audiences, uh, even if sort of the idea is not to definitely you know, perform transnationally, but rather just to sing with singers that you wanted to sing with, still uh, that's one of the, the, the meanings that gets projected from projects like this. And then a singer like, like Cameo, or the younger singers that were coming up at that time, uh, would see this and, and would see that this is a transnational practice. And I think that that was important for, yeah. Yeah, I don't want to talk No, please do. That's, that's the point. I, still, <laughs> still in the yeah, 80s, the still in the 80s, it was like, you know, um, you would have this cassette, this is great music from, I don't know, Indonesia or, mm-hmm. or Arabic music, and, and you couldn't just find it, in, you know, there was no internet, so it was not available. You would just have this tape and then copy it for a friend. It was still... Yeah. Kind of, uh, or you had to, I mean, I was in France at that time quite a bit, and I, I had a lot of friends in the Arabic community, so uh-huh. I went to these parties where the women do these, these trills, and for uh-huh. me it was the first time yeah. when I was 23 or 24 that I heard this, and being, being in that context, and then, you know, you would do these tales and give them to friends I would receive, so it was still kind of a bit of an underground thing, I think, compared to today. Yeah. Um, does, does anyone in the panel have examples of the way that uh, free improvised music spaces, free jazz spaces, um, have uh, led to transcultural collaborations of singers from different traditions coming together? What comes to mind for you? Yeah, I've done, uh, yeah, um, I've done many projects that um, touch on that. Um, Jeff. Jeff. <laughs> the fly is called Jeff. <laughs> There's one fly, he's Jeff. Um, uh, yeah, actually, it's interesting because uh, many, like, many of these projects are, um, have been led by Sandeep Bhagwati, who I've uh, worked with just last week. Um, and um, he uses the word transtraditional um, in the sense that sometimes uh, when you talk about culture, it's like you're, you're a body, you're a cultural bearer, you're like the representative of something. As a tradition, he argues, is something you kind of choose. So mm-hmm. the same way you have, you know, you could have a, 
Korean uh, concert pianist, right? The, the, that, that's their tradition. They chose to, 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 to work within that, that, um, that uh, environment and culture. So um, that's just something I thought you find interesting. But yeah, I, I've then, um, what you've mentioned just earlier how the free improvisers, extended voice artists are usually, um, uh, did you use the word bilingual or I imagined it? Or I didn't. <laughs> like well-versed in different approaches, you know. That, oh yeah, that, that they don't come from just one tradition. Yeah, that's a, a, a word I kind of use when it comes to um, uh, trans-traditional collaboration, um, is that we're getting at a place where um, I think that if there's a dominant uh, culture, um, it sometimes assumes that uh, the rest is traditional and very like um, um, static and doesn't have experimentation mm -hmm. within it, yeah. but that's a misconception. So mm -hmm. I think that lots of the uh, tradition, the collaborations that, that I've done and that um, involve musicians that are, you know, bilingual, trilingual. So yeah, yeah, I'm from Senegal and I play the kora, but I do these like pop shows too. So and I do, and I've played with this band and all that. Uh, or, you know, and yeah, I'm from new music and I've done experimental music, but I've, I have. The, uh, done things in India and I've looked at other types of music, etc. So these are the the, uh, the collaborations that are, are fruitful and interesting. I think as we're stepping into and now we're talking about you mentioned you know 30 years back we we, we discuss it or this, or the same way, but now we're really getting a, a, in a new uh, era, I guess. And I think that um, it's it's a it's you know what we do is so marginal, right? So it's not. I say that the main, uh, dominant ideology, but it's it, it, it's still not. We're we're powerless. Like what we do is, has no impact whatsoever. But you can find people in in different uh, that subscribe to different traditions or that have different cultural backgrounds that are uh, interested in experimenting and in in um, in just getting in that uncomfortable place of of uh, trying to to play music together and you because we're talking about voice, one project we did was, uh, I mentioned the, the, the Senegal guy, his name is Zal Sissoko, and he's a uh, griot, is, I don't know how this, is it griot? Yeah. Um, and he, uh, he and I and Kia Tadassian, who's like a, a Persian a musician, a composer, and he, so we, we had a show with uh, 10 musicians, and they played their instrument, but we did a vocal trio, <coughs> and it's one of the most, uh, touching improvisations that I've ever done because we all sing in a, a sort of in a style but uh, uh, you, I'm sure the audience might perceive uh, that person singing as uh, someone from Senegal and that mm -hmm. one is from Iran and that one's the weird guy in the middle you know but it's like everyone is is trying to, 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 to there's a negotiation and it's so I think that it's really important to acknowledge that uh, more and more when we bring uh, different uh, traditions together, different people, um, that they're also part of the research. You know, they're also researchers and experimenters. Um, and that's like, yeah, that's what I'd have to add to that. <laughs> yeah. A bunch of years ago, I, I used to have a thought for myself. Um, imagine that the, the uh, world dominant culture was not the Western the Western culture, but it was an African culture or Chinese or an Asian culture was a world dominating culture and, and now would be in control of mm, the economy. Imagine that. If that were the case, then Western music would be considered to be a minority folk tradition. Mm -hmm. uh, classical music, uh, lute music, uh, 
uh, orchestral music, uh, jazz, uh, bluegrass, blues, hillbilly, improvisation will be considered to be all branches of a kind of minority ethnic, ethnic folk tradition. And I always enjoy thinking of myself as a folk musician. I know I wasn't a folk musician uh, in the sense that we mostly talk about it, but in the 80s I would sometimes advertise myself as an as a experimental folk musician purely to get occasional gigs in weird places. Mm -hmm. and, and in fact, like at a, a folk festival, a folk and blues festival, uh, like for example, Winnipeg had, had a famous folk and blues festival. And so I advertised, I said, well, I'm a folk, improvising folk musician, you know, and um, which was kind of a joke, a perversion of the system. But what they did was they booked me in between the, uh, the Inuit women Eskimo singers <laughs> who sing like that, and Anna and Kate McGarrigal, uh, classic folk singer. And, and my, my, my stuff was like in between them, and it kind of fit perfectly in a weird way. I mean, it, it, fit, it fit as well as anything could fit between those two extremes in a certain way. And therefore, what happens is new people hear something. And you reach people in one way or another that never would come to the improvising jazz circle or improvising blah blah contemporary classical blah blah circle. And uh, this is important for any artist, any performer, and any scene to have this sense of a growing uh, community with fresh viewpoints. You know? Yeah, I'll have to squeeze that story into the book. That's a, that's Please. important for young singers to know. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, did, at, you know, at this, the, the Buba Jame, do you remember improvising with him? Or? Yeah, uh, I remember, you know, I, 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 yeah, I remember singing together. Uh, okay. How much he was improvising, I can't say, yeah. because it, his tradition and his language, yeah. uh, I'm not aware, but I, from my perspective, was able to move in his direction, co uh, coasting, sliding around his voice. Yeah. Uh, perhaps. You have to ask him how much he was improvising in that situation. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, you've you've done a lot of this kind of work. Uh, your um, there's a video of you with Rozelle, for instance, coming from the beatbox tradition. Right, right, yeah, oh, yeah, well, yeah. Some people don't. Yeah, some people don't want to improvise. Some people have a very strict form, and uh, anything that touches the form disturbs the form. You know. Uh, on the other hand, disturbance from from the perspective of of the avant-garde, or whatever that means, disturbance is an interesting factor, you know, so we don't mind it, I don't mind disturbance. Disturbance that something grabs at you, or pushes you, or touches you in a way that you don't control. Mm -hmm. I've never minded that as a performer, it's kind of interesting, you know. So, mm -hmm. some, but some people don't want it, like Roselle was not, so this uh, hip-hop, uh, or beatboxer, Brazil was not so interested in it. However, there was another beatboxer that was interested in it, Killer Kella, another you know, British beatboxer. He and I improvised together, and it was like, it was like, yeah, it was, it was, it was fun. It was fun, you know. Yeah. It was interesting, but it depends on the people. It always comes down to the to the people, you know. Whatever trans cultural trans whatever whatever experimental thing is happening, it's. Do I have a relationship of some kind? Am I finding a relationship with this with these, this person? You know. So, Molly, any uh, moments where you got to uh, sing with uh, someone from another tradition because of the space that 
free improvisation opens up for them? Actually, it's a mic case, so yeah, I, I don't have so much thing to talk about it because especially, you know, it's I started my activity in, in Tokyo in, in 1990, and it's, you know, still Tokyo is quite actually monolithic. It's, uh, one looks like quite more culture and basically it's only Japanese and we are, and also it's an important thing in words so we somehow we had some distance from the Japanese tradition and so we feel so we are not really belong to anywhere and still I have that sense but for example my case so this is why so I approached to work with non-musicians and who doesn't have a music background because of the innocent point of voice is that everyone has it. Yeah. And everyone can use it. And this is why also I'm very curious about the tradition of the sound poetry. Because if I say music, so people think it is a, they need some music uh, technique. Yeah. But if I say poetry, so everyone can write poetry actually. And so this is why, is it something wrong? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so this is why I, I like sometimes I intentionally say this is sound, it is a poetry. And so I wanted the choir, and so with, and they don't, most of them say don't have, but even they cannot, they couldn't read the music at all. But just I say, so just play like this, and like this. And it is a little bit different idea about the trans culture or something like that, but it's rather, it's a voice, it was a medium to something over some borderline between the taken uh, the screens. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so it was my practice in nineteen nineties in Tokyo. Yeah. Yeah, the way that um, people who identify as non singers or people who feel that, that they don't belong to that term um, are invited in by the practices of singers is a, a major theme in the book and gets especially uh, covered in the final chapter, which is about improvising choirs and the history of, of free jazz choirs. Um, and your, your royal chorus is yeah. a nice, nice example of that. Um, I want to read one more paragraph here and have you respond, David. Uh, after direct sound, uh, you continue to organize transnational voice-only or nearly voice-only ensembles. In the late 1990s, you organized what you called the Vocal Village Project, a quartet of vocalists, Catherine Jonon, Makigami Koichi, Phil Minton, and yourself, uh, two of whom were doubling on percussion, uh, accompanied by one instrumentalist, uh, Frank Schultz, sure. uh, on electronics and keyboard. Uh, in this project, uh, you assembled four vocalists, each from a different country, and you highlighted, or, or the, the transnational nature of the ensemble was highlighted prominently, uh, with the name of the ensemble, uh, which seems to be a play on Marshall McLuhan's notion of the global village. Uh, why did you uh, gravitate towards that term, and what do you think it, it did? You know, uh, oftentimes vocalists get put either in the front of the band or kind of behind the band. I mean, you're either, when you're vocalist, you're either the person singing in the front, you know, the soloist, or you're the chorus in the back. Uh, it's a strange position that culture looks on singers, and actually, if you look at the way culture thinks about singers, it's okay to sing when you're a kid, it's okay to sing when you're in church, it's sort of okay to be a pop star, it's okay to be a pop star for a while, but it's not so much okay to be singing much of anywhere else, truthfully. Um, so for me, the idea that voice was connected to life, to daily life, and that singing was connected to, to everything you do in daily life, uh, riding on a bicycle, cooking bread, taking your dog for a walk, uh, going swimming, 
uh, sitting around the campfire, uh, walking with your friends. It's what singing was connected with this was actually, for me, the reason to call it vocal village. That, in fact, we are humans living in proximity to each other, and our voices are the main way that we touch each other. We don't touch physically with our eyes. We only in, uh, Our eyes take in. Our eyes don't touch, generally speaking. Uh, we don't go around touching people to see what they're, what they're like, usually. We, but we do have this uh, air thing going, going back and forth between us, which is our voices. But for me, it was a kind of a, we belong, we sing, we, we all do it, and let's recognize that, and let's make it not a specialized thing that is only permissible here or there. Thank you. And the will is nice and always permissible. <laughs> <laughs> so let's close this portion uh, with a bit more music, uh, and then we'll take a break, and then maybe do a bit more if people are up for it. Um, you know what would be nice? Uh, David, Tomomi, and Alessandra, would you like to sing? <laughs> Would you like to come up and improvise with David and Tomomi? Okay. Yeah? <laughs> I didn't check ahead with her, so... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> 
Surprise guest, Kazuhito uh, Seki, uh, local uh, improviser from the scene. Uh, but the, the other surprise guest was Alessandra, Alessandra Eramo. Um, thank you for both of them for just jumping in. That, that's thank what this so is all about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so we're going to do a bit more talk, oh, one more uh, improvisation before we're done. Oh! Um, maybe a nice way to, uh, to, to do the next part is actually to start if there's a question from any of you. Anybody, any of you curious about something or have a question to pose to our panel? What the fuck? <laughs> it's, it's a very difficult question because it's hard to know where to draw that line. Um, I, I interviewed about uh, 25 uh, in the course of my research over the last five years. Um, I, I don't know, I would, I would estimate, you know, that's, you know, a couple hundred probably. 
Um, there's a there's a lot that I mean I come to a city like this all of a sudden last night I meet uh, Kazuhito Seki for the first time. Uh, um, it's it's hard to gauge I think a, an, an accurate number. But anybody else have a guess? <laughs> I think 200 worldwide. 200 more or less is probably a good. Uh, I think maybe more. More. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, but I mean it, where we draw the line right there. Yeah. You just think of people that do it. Uh, you know. No. Yeah. I, I don't know. We should look at that. Facebook group, you know, extended voice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There is one, and there's probably 300 people or something in that one, and maybe some of them are you know, fans that don't practice, you know, but. Different contexts might yeah. apply. And you think of dancers and how they, they're introducing more and more, like, and the, yeah. I don't know, I think there's a, a surprising amount, I think, is the subjective. And you have a lot of classical singers who are doing these score pieces yeah. with all these extended techniques, but they just don't really feel like improvising doing their own, yeah. their own style, or they find their own style in interpreting, but really draw the line mm. But also the way they often do the extended techniques is quite different, because they are still often, I mean, I, I don't want to generalize, but quite often they are still, um, the real voice is the operatic voice and the other thing no. is on top, and they try to protect yes. their voice. Mm. Uh, during the break, uh, Uta had a, a great story uh, related to my last set of questions, and it's this chapter four, this transcultural, transnational chapter, that I have to do the most work on in the next couple of weeks. So I, I've been asking maybe to, to can you tell us uh, the story that we were sharing about the, the yeah. Uh, oh yeah. Um, a few years ago, I was pa uh, part of a project with Mongolian musicians in Berlin, and it was initiated by I I uh, composer Iris Terskepost. and um, it was quite inter very interesting. We, we spent four or five days together, improvising and finding ways of communicating musically. And it was obvious that they had a very, very different approach. So, um, and it ended up being also a lot about storytelling, because in Mongolian folk music there's a lot of all these songs tell stories. And the process was super interesting. I'm not sure if the concert was, you know, musically, um, if it resolved all the issues musically, if the concert was, uh, for me it was really more about the process of uh, sharing experience with these musicians. Mm -hmm. And we, we kind of did workshops for each other also, um, on, sing on different ways of singing and, um, yeah. Do, do you think that if it wasn't um, connected to uh, a practice and a history of free improvisation, that that could have happened or would have happened? Does uh, it have something to do with I what free improvisation need, is? I think it needed maybe a bit more time, because you know what was interesting? They also did a concert of their um, traditional music, and that was really rocking the house. And it was so super strong. And I could just feel, see them feeling very differently, you know, with their own music and, and then I'm, because it was like an experiment, you know, it was it's much more fragile because you are looking for new forms and new ways of communicating. So, um, yeah. Yeah, um, I'm going to read two little more sections from this chapter uh, just to see if there's anything else we can talk about related to this. So, uh, it's again back about mm -hmm. David's work. So, just prior to his Vocal Village product project, uh, David enlisted. Uh, Phil Minton for another project, an opera called Survival Songs. 
Uh, like the other projects mentioned here, the opera staged a spectacle of transnational connections and flows of free jazz vocalists. Mitten was not the only first-generation free jazz vocalist involved in survival songs. Uh, Moss also recruited Gene Lee for the project. Alongside Minton, Lee, and Moss were two other vocalists, uh, Susan Dehim and Sanko Namchalak. And so through direct sound, vocal village, and survival songs alone, we've encountered a broad array of the most active and accomplished free jazz vocalists on the sound singing side of the free jazz vocal spectrum. Each of these projects announces that the present is unlike the past, that an era in which a singer like Tamiya could look for and fail to find others exploring free jazz sound singing is a bygone era. All four of these projects also perform to audiences that free jazz voice is a practice that's taken hold in cities all over the globe, and or that free jazz is a space in which vocal practices from all over the globe can come into and are coming into contact and collaboration. Um, can you tell us a bit about survival songs? Uh, I had a chance, I was asked to make a, a big project, and I wanted to bring some singers together and put them on a, on a large stage, on, in fact, on an opera stage. I felt that the opera stages were, were dominated by a certain category of singers, a certain history, and maybe it was time to uh, bring some different people onto that stage and let them have that experience. And, and so uh, I invited these four other singers and to work together, to improvise. We improvised together in a rehearsal room for several weeks. I had some storytelling structures, some set situations which I developed, like singing around the table, uh, moving in a certain pattern, using the, using the turntable, the, what they call the Drebuna, the giant turntable on the opera house stage, which turns in a circle. Um, uh, all of these events uh, gave the, the, the individual singers a chance to be dramatic and theatrical in a way in which they already were. In fact, all these singers were dramatic and they were theatrical, but they were never seen in that light. They were seen only as strange, uh, eccentric weirdos or vocal artists or whatever, experimenters. And, and um, in fact, this beautiful character, these beautiful physical bodies, these beautiful way, personal way of working was there. Just needed to, uh, I had the pleasure to put it in a framework which would really highlight that, uh, that, that situation. We encountered some very interesting resistance from an interesting person. You don't know this, I don't think. <laughs> Whose name is Karl Heinz Stockhausen. It was the year 1996. Stockhausen was very alive. And um, uh, our piece, Survival Songs, was premiering at the Leipzig Opera House one week before the premiere of Donnerstag aus Licht. So, uh, Stockhausen's full-length opera, Donner's Thursday of Light. Uh, and it was a world premiere of, of Thursday of Light. And Stockhausen had been given a, a, a giant factory outside of Leipzig uh, to rehearse in for like three months or four months or six months. Uh, and we, we were given a rehearsal room for, for singers, which we had for two weeks before the show. That's okay, that's the way it goes. And we were given the main stage to rehearse on for three days the Fiat the, the Opera House for three days before the premiere. So we had to do lighting, staging, movement, everything had to be done, sound, three days on stage. <clears throat> uh, day one was great, everyone was excited, lots of mistakes, figuring things out. 
we've gone for, for day two, two, three days before the premiere, day two on the main stage, and the, the, the chief dramaturg, the assistant to the intendant of the Opera House Company says, oh yeah, Herr Moss, um, we have a small problem. Yes, you know, it's, um, it's, uh, it's Herr Dr. Stockhausen, Herr Dr. Stockhausen. Uh, you know, he has a big opera and it's coming soon, and he needs the main stage today. And I said, what? He needs the main stage today? I said, I'm on the main stage today. My group is on the main stage today. We have our premiere in two days. Yes, you know, your piece is very important to us, but Stockhausen is Stockhausen, you know. And uh, I said, yes, I agree, Stockhausen is Stockhausen. Um, <laughs> but, and then I, 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 internally, as a performer, I had this interesting short chance. I said to myself, am I going to be insane now, or am I going to just be a normal person? Not insane, but I'm going, am I going to take my place here at this point? Am I going to say, hey? So I, I said, okay, I'm going to say, hey. But I said, I said to her, excuse me, madam. If anyone from Stockhausen's the show, or even Herr Professor Stockhausen, comes onto the stage today in any way, comes near me, you see over there on the wall there is a, an axe for fire, for the fire? I will take this axe and I will become a dangerous person. <laughs> this is my stage. Please, you can't take, take it away. So, okay, so we had this stage. I, I had to act this way to protect... I'm not, it's not like I'm, I'm a great person. Or, I had to protect what, I, what, what was there. And the world, the world uh, does what the world wants to do, you know, and uh, it, it's willing to make certain compromises that, that you have to decide. So I had to make a stance for this piece. Anyhow, we did this piece, it was wonderful, uh, we had a different audience, half opera, half jazz, half whatever, and we did it in Berlin, at the Berliner Ensemble, at this wonderful Brecht Theater, we did it in several other places, and uh, each time we had a new audience, and each time these five singers did something different that they never sang before in a certain way, in the imp improvisational moments. So it was a great project for me. That's wonderful, thank you. So, in addition to the notable projects that we've discussed tonight, uh, and many of the projects I don't have the space here to mention, um, Moss has also contributed a sustained project, an institute, as he calls it, for living voice, that's created an intercultural space for vocal sharing and collaboration. The institute took the form of a traveling series of 16 multi-day sessions involving workshops, panel discussions, and concerts in different cities around the world from 2001 uh, to 2012. <laughs> My pages are a little bit out of order, yeah, until 2012. Uh, <clears throat> Rather than performing primarily the transnational connectedness of free jazz vocalists, the Institute for Living Voice uh, positioned free jazz vocal traditions as an important part of the broader shared global intercultural practice referred to by the term singing. The first edition of the Institute for Living Voice uh, advertised its, quote, intention to break down the boundaries between entertainment, classics, experimental, artistic, traditional and world vocal techniques, from postmodern pop and electronic hip-hop to opera and bel canto, from the 20th century extended voice to traditional ethnic and folk songs, from cabaret and chanson to extreme vocal experiments, and much, much more, end quote. Every one of the Institute sessions consisted of workshops led by singers that emerged from distinct singing traditions, though, as discussed above, many emerge from multiple traditions, though it's an impossible goal, the aspiration of the Institute was to specialize in, quote, workshops and concerts in all vocal genres, end quote. The hope was that 
Such an approach had genre erasing potential and participants could develop their voices in, quote, an exploratory, not a conservatory, thus giving participants the chance to mix and measure the lively variety of contemporary vocal music for themselves, end quote. As I've discussed above and in chapter three, this kind of mixing of styles and traditions in the creation of an idiosyncratic vocabulary was already what the space of free jazz afforded many singers. While free jazz singing is a tradition in itself, it's a tradition that offer, often encourages singers to combine inspirations from various traditions to allow a wide range of dynamic sonic sources to inform the ways that one utilizes their own voice and body. So can you tell us more about the Institute and about this, these kinds of crossings, the way that singers develop their voice in there? Uh, and also, um, if it was a space, again, for this transcultural improvisation that I've been you're going to keep on pushing that one. Um, uh, i got to finish this chapter. <laughs> okay, I, I, I don't want to talk too long about this, but um, uh, Institute for Living Voice. The, title, the name of the Institute for Living Voice was a kind of a uh, cosmic joke. We were no institute. We had no institution. We had no house. We had nothing. Only the support of someone somewhere who would give us some money and some rooms to bring people together. Each time those the, that place changed, we moved, we, were, we had no house, we were nomad. So, so uh, we gave no certification. We didn't give you a stempel and said you successfully completed our course, you are now a graduate of the Institute for Living Voice. We didn't do that. Even when someone asked for it, we didn't do it. Um, uh, so in some way we were fighting against the desires of the educational pedagogic mainstream, and that was one of my wishes to fight against that. There were two other wishes that I had very strong. You know, by the time the Institute for Living Voice came along in 2001, the chances to meet Phil Minton or Diamanda Galas or Meredith Monk, the chances to meet them as an upcoming singer, as a younger person, as a developing uh, vocalist, were very small. The chances to find them, except to see them at a, at a festival, say, hi, you were great tonight, oh, bye, you're catching a plane, well, okay, see you next year. That was basically uh, what was happening with, with the, this, this small scene of uh, self-developing, self self-developed vocalists. And <coughs> in addition to the young people not being able, younger people not being able to find a way into these people, we, professionals, I saw Meredith Monk once a year. Hi, Meredith, great to see you. Really good gig, see you next year. Hey, Phil, what are you doing? Oh, yeah, we have to have a meal together. Bye! You know, I mean, it was crazy. Here were the people we cared about most in the world who had influenced us as younger, uh, up-and-coming players, and we never saw each other anymore because of the economic system we were dealing with. We were trying to survive. We had to travel, we had to do the gigs, we had to come and go, we had to fly. We never were together, and nobody knew really, when we would ever give a workshop. Some, hey, when are you giving the workshop next? I never can find it anywhere. Where's the information? What's happening, you know? And uh, so I, one of the reasons I made the ILV was to give a place where people could be with each other, where I could go have lunch with Phil, where Meredith and I could take a walk, you know, down the street uh, over to the river, where, where <laughs> Diamanda Galas and I could sit and, and drink a, a glass of wine together and talk about you know how we came to whatever we came to all these things just to hang out with people where Koichi Makagami could do a, a, a mouth harp duo with Meredith Monk suddenly on the spur of the moment and, and, and make each other really happy mm. all this stuff but there is no 
capitalist consumer time for, you know? And that was uh, one of the, and the one rule, we had two rules, <laughs> we had one rule when you wanted to be part, it was not a rule, but if you wanted to come to the ILV as a participant, as a workshop member, you had to, the rule was if you had to go to at least two workshops. So suppose you were a Meredith monk freak and you only wanted to learn Meredith, to Mer you only wanted to be next to Meredith, and you wrote, I want to be in Meredith Monk's workshop. <coughs> we would write back and say, that's very nice, but what other workshop do you want? No, we don't want any other workshop. I only want to be with Meredith. And we say, sorry, you can't come here. That was the rule we had. If you want to come here, you have to do two things. They have to be different, and they were different enough so that you would get some kind of mixing, mixing mental experience happening. You know, you had to dedicate yourself to the idea that I, I wasn't just coming to like hang out with someone that I, I is like love of my life, you know. So that was my, one of my little subterranean games I was playing, say, okay, we can make things more interesting if we force, we force people to um, take, you want to be with Meredith, then you have to be with Koichi. You want to be with Koichi, then you have to be with, uh, with uh, uh, Ustad Shagan, a Pakistani singer. One thing or the other, you have to try both things. So those are, it wasn't, yeah, it was a rule. <laughs> yeah. So that was, one, that was the eye of you. Yeah, that, that's, that's, you know, and a very important point, this, this idea of an exploratorium rather than conservatorium. Um, and the, the point about sociability is the point we're going to end on. Um, but before I go there, just uh, one more attempt at this question. Did you brought so many uh, representatives of so many different vocal traditions together? Can you share memories of them uh, improvising across these traditions? Anything else come to mind? Uh, it took time. This is something I have to say. When a per when a performer from another tradition came to to us, say we had in Antwerp, and they only came for t one night. Uh. If that happened the improvisational uh, aspect could never develop. It really did not develop. What happened was that they sang together with someone else, they did their shit, and someone else did their shit. And it happened at the same time. If, on the other hand, I could get someone to stay for five days, which I tried to do, hey, we'll give you a hotel for five days, we'll feed you for five days, why don't you stay with us for five days, and we can like sing together, and try stuff together, and see what, if anything, is possible. Um, then there was a possibility, what we neglect is the idea that this stuff needs time. We don't ever have any time anymore, you know? I mean, excuse me, every tradition in the world, when, they, when, when the Mongolian tradition meets the, meets the Chinese classical tradition, it takes 2,000 years for them to come up with something new. I mean, you know, they, 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 they smash together for 2,000 years to develop a new format, you know? And we smash things together for, for like three and a half hours, and we're thinking we're going to get like some kind of like new improvised format or some kind of like other thing that you never, well, yeah, sure, you'll get a splash, you'll get a jolt, you'll get an electricity, <coughs> which you can work on later. But the time factor is really, unfortunately, not there in our current lives. You know? yeah. That's exactly what I need to finish this chapter. Thank you. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, one of the extraordinary things about tonight is, you know, I put together this panel uh, based on, you know, who lived in Berlin. I was coming to Berlin, my friend was coming from Canada, uh, and so. Um, it, you guys are based in Berlin, uh, but everybody on this stage right now has put substantial time into working with improvising choirs, into leading others into improvisation, 
opening up a space for other people that might not have a chance to use their voice in public to use their voice in public. Every single one of us has done that. Um, I, I'll, I'll just read my last passage from the book here. And again, it's about David's work, but then I'll ask each of you to talk about your experiences um, leading uh, inclusive uh, improvising choirs and workshops. Um, so David describes the genesis of his new Babel choir, which he did here in the city, uh, by explaining, quote, amazingly enough, the call for singers to form an unknown choir making unknown music with an unknown leader got on a Sunday in January 80 people to show up from the most mixed cultural heritage you can imagine, from age 5 to age 85. And of seven or nine nationalities in this room, a gorgeous, amazing group of people. I walked around the room and I was like, wow, I never saw such a diverse age background group, none of which were singers. And I think there was one guy that had done some improvising, but there was not a singer in the room. And they all wanted to sing. David met weekly with this group uh, in the <laughs> area of Berlin for a period of a year. And their year together culminated in a parade event where the choir was expanded further in a gesture of even more radical inclusivity. Moss recounted this expansion, explaining, I wrote this melody for the group that was our group melody, and the melody got published in the newspaper so anyone could learn the melody. It was a big, funny deal. The newspaper said, if you want to sing with us and join the parade, all you have to do is learn this melody. What was really funny is I wrote the melody in C, no sharps and flats. I handed it to the opera house, and it came back to me just before it was published in three flats, because they told me that was the better way to write it. And I said, no, I'm sorry, we can't write it like this. I don't care. We have to uh, put it in C somehow. As soon as anyone who doesn't read music sees something in three flats, they're not going to look at it anymore. I wouldn't either, because I can't read music in three flats. Forget about it. Put it in C. It was a real primal musicological argument, and it went back to C. We had 220 people on the street to make a demonstration, to get the license. It had to be political. You can't just have uh, an art demonstration and get police escorts and close the street. So we made signs that said, everyone has a voice. We have the freedom to use our voice. Your voice is powerful. Use your voice. Voices are what's necessary in society. Vote with your voice. Um, can you tell us some memories of working in this you way? You said it all! Yeah. <laughs> Anything else you want to add? Why do you do this? Why do you put time into opening up uh, spaces for others? Do you, do, you, do you imagine that you can, anyone, do you imagine you can contr actually control 200 people on the street in <laughs> Neukölln? And, I mean, you can't control this. You can control, you can set a framework that you think will keep people from being hit by cars, but you can't control this event. You can only set loose the energy of this event, you know? And this is a beautiful thing. It's just a great feeling. Like, drunk that time in 2010 or whenever, there were lots of drinking people on the streets in Neukölln, Karl Marx Allee, and people on the side of the street were like learning our melody. It was simple enough for a drunk person to learn, you know? It was like, you know, la, 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 la. They were all singing this melody, and it was just so great from beginning to end. The dogs were barking, and the people on the sides of the street were beeping their horns, and we, I mean, you know, it was uncontrollable, but it was loosely they're loosely moving in the, in the direction it had to go. And it's beautiful. It's just like you never have this feeling. It's just a special feeling. Yeah. Not just for me, but for everyone. A lot of people. Okay. Gabriel, you've been doing a lot of this work in Montreal. Um, yeah, it's fairly recent, though. Um, I've been doing mostly workshops with uh, a collaborator called Elizabeth Lima, mm -hmm. and we did it with 
kids, we did it with an organization that helps uh, me mental health through the arts, we've done it with elders, whatever that means, because they weren't that old. Um, and uh, we did it with, you know, kind of artists that aren't um, necessarily musicians, with musicians that aren't necessarily singers. Um, and what we do is we use, um, I've done some alone too, I've some, done some with that, uh, diverse groups. That The only one I did for more than just like, you know, one little thing there to like, brighten up their day like once in a lifetime kind of thing. I hope they found other opportunities after that, but the only one I did uh, was this fall with a group of 20 people or so that kind of stuck around for five days and we came up with like pieces and approaches and some were musicians, some, it was very uh, diverse. Uh, one man though and 19 women was awesome to <laughs> flip the uh, general uh, dynamic of working with, in music and, mm. in, uh, anyway. um, and um, yeah we use uh, mostly this kind of um, oral tradition of conducted uh, uh, hand signals that give different um, indications to the so what to do in terms of material and when you come and all that, but we have we we use those often to uh, go f not further but go other places. So I think that when you describe these uh, hand signals, it, it triggers uh, ways to think of how you use your voice and what, what oh that was loud and and uh, short that was the melody and that was the more noise like that was texture and then you get uh, into other. Um, pieces or approaches where it's uh, not as prescriptive uh, and they kind of have that in like all warmed up in the, in their ear in their voice in their brain um, so I, I quite like to uh, kind of go back and forth with the, the sound painting and everywhere we go we kind of acknowledge that it's it's not our thing uh, because that's really important um, I, I've been inspired by so many uh, conductors. I've sang in that in that context, like being conducted you know, by Jean Etienne in Montreal, by Phil and, and Maggie and uh, Christine Duncan, D.B. Boyko, and all these people. And I, I've taken a lot from from how they conduct. And um, so we, we 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 tend to minimize kind of our our we're, we're there as facilitators mostly. Um, yeah, that's about it. Well, me, you're a master of participatory art. <laughs> Tell us a bit about some of your projects. Uh, my case, you know, I cannot say it, is, it was uh, the improvised voice choir. Actually, it's, uh, they are playing my piece, in fact. But the main idea is, uh, okay, so I, when I, I had a choir, and it's uh, somehow 1997 to 2003. In Tokyo, it's called Adachi Tomomi Royal Chorus. And, so they were playing my piece actually, and it's but the idea is uh, so choir without harmony and determined pitch. Of course, they you have a pitch always, but it's basically it's kind of a speaking choir. The idea is was speaking choir, and then we played punk rock. It was <laughs> <the idea. laughs> yes, and always the my interest was to work with non musicians. Because it's, they have many different backgrounds. Also, it's a particularly it's a, in Japan, it make, really makes sense because uh, art is, you know, it's not really the established mm. world yet. 
And okay, so art is a really small world, so we sh I should work with other people. And in that case, actually, voice is really, really important materials because you can sing, you can say something always, and you are doing it in daily life. And it, it, so this is why I use voice and I own a choir. And yes, I had a band like that, and it was uh, always uh, seven to nine people. And okay, but so I couldn't continue so much because too complex to organize people and then I shifted to organize a workshop and the temporary people gathered in the same place and sometimes just three hours but if possible it's three days and make together mostly I make some direction and I give some small materials but make music together and always really I enjoy it. And in that case of also the in the context of improvisation so I use actually newspaper too and to read use newspaper it was published on that morning. And it means every day, so they have another materials. Mm -hmm. And you know, you can read newspaper always. And I may also I make some methods to conduct people and repeat it or sing now or shout, it shout the text like that. And I'm doing that workshop. It's some of the last six, seven years in all over the world. And also language. So I'm very curious about my, you know, my one of my focus is the language exactly. And use language. It's sometimes extremely political because, for example, so I did the workshop in Cyprus in two years ago, I think. It's a context of a poetry festival. And okay, to use Greek, people speaks. Greeks, but actually one guy came from the another side of Cyprus, and so he spoke Turkish, and it is actually even slightly became discussion about because it's you know which language you use you use it's really really big matter for them, and it was quite okay. So I said it was a really interesting situation, and. And I noticed to use language actually not only just purely voice language is makes the situation very complex and interesting. Great. And Uta, you've been doing this work as well. Uh, why do you do this work? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I think I like to do this work because I find it always super amazing because we all speak, and as children we did scream and I mean if you just watch smaller kids it's amazing the range of vocal expression and if we are in extreme situations and sob and cry or whatever or laugh loudly we also still do that a little bit as an adult but I just in, in, I really like to work on the um, sounds without words and going to the extremes and in these workshops, I, mean, I teach a lot of workshops, I always find this moment so interesting when suddenly this other voice comes out, you know, and somebody, uh, also the experience for that person. Um, and um, yeah, I, I just really like this freeing thing. Um, and with the choir projects I do different things. I, um, I also work with conduction, but I also like to work on free improvisation, in, on free improvisation and on kind of rules or games. 
So doing a mixture, um, you know, it's also very interesting to work with choirs and, and work on structure so they, they sing without any signs. And sometimes I do mixtures of these and sometimes I provide a score. I did a project in Bolzano in a festival where I was asked to compose a piece and then I came with my composition which I tried with my own voice uh, on the laptop and we performed in a garden center in a greenhouse so it was all about insect and animal sounds. And then I had this Baroque choir, which I didn't know that I would work with a Baroque choir. <laughs> so I kind of used my compositions as, just as a blueprint because I wanted to have a good time with these people and not, you know, kind of push my compositions through. So I, so I, I used it as an improvisational structure. And we had so much fun because they were also, we did lots of exercises, they were discovering all these other voices which they didn't know of. They, had them and um, and then uh, I put together this piece and it was it's also very interesting I think with these processes to find the right roles for everybody for example there was one woman and she was really a baroque singer her most that she only did one sound in the piece she chose she just you know like it's this monster frog and she only did this and she enjoyed it so much it was just fantastic so i found all these you know buzzing and insect sounds and we were in the greenhouse between these plants doing this piece yeah. and just this moment that that you know you you walk out of your comfort zone and find, but find real pleasure in doing this different thing. I, I just think that's fantastic. I don't know, I enjoy it so much. <laughs> I forgot something. Um, I, 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 um, well, in Anthropologie Imagina, in the piece that I do, um, that's more like theatrically framed, I include a moment where I, I conduct the audience without any uh, mm. explanation. Yeah, yeah, and I've been doing it. Yeah, <laughs> wow. And um, there's uh, another uh, thing I do that I've taken, because in, in the scope of that piece, it's, you know, I, I work with like, oh, yeah, there's an assault, I'm going to do three groups, and, you know, just because it lasts like five minutes, so it needs to be kind of efficient and uh, fit with some you know, video cues and all that. But I've been interested in, in doing, taking that same idea of like a, a song for an, uh, like a hypnotized choir kind of thing. And I've, I've been doing it sometimes live after concerts when people are really like at the end, you know, when people are just warmed up and just into it. And um, you start just singing and then you, you just do the, this, these types of conducting gestures, but, but not like, you know, not super like that, just like, you know, you know and it works. People um, join, it might not be every individual in, in the room, but enough that you kind of feel like, okay, this is, this is happening and it's just the, the greatest feeling. And then, then you do all these symbols that don't mean anything, but they interpret it. It's like, you're like this, and it becomes all like noisy, because they've just heard <laughs> tons of, of sounds from uh, the people that were on stage before, and that's like just lovely. So I, I like to have this uh, this kind of um, yeah. There's a workshop and all of that, but to kind of have it happen by a surprise, you know, that they, people don't necessarily expect it when they have come in. Like, like I'm, I've signed up for a workshop, and that's great. But getting people to sound when it, like or the bystanders in, in, that, that you were describing, that kind of, of that, that's. That's another level of magic, I think, that's really touching. Uh, yeah. So 
So obviously there's only one way to end this evening. Uh, let's all stand in a circle and, and improvise together. Everybody. You don't have to make sound if you don't want, but let's Everybody. all have a chance to find our own monster frogs. Uh, thank you so much uh, to everyone on the panel for the, your generosity of being here tonight and, and your contributions to this project. Um, and thank you all for being here. Let's have a round of applause for the So with Chris doing a final round of thank yous, I'm going to break in just before the final improvisation to say I hope that you have enjoyed this monster deep dive into a form of vocalization, of vocal expression, of improvisation, free jazz improvisation, whatever you want to call it. Certainly one of the most obscure, in terms of number of practitioners in the world, forms of art that we will get to really dive into in this series again. So thank you once again for uh, listening to Sounds Curious. We look forward to hearing you in upcoming episodes. And for those of you who really enjoy field recordings and when they kind of leak into other forms of recording. There's a wonderful moment at the end of this collective improvisation when a Berlin siren goes off right outside the space. And it's fun to hear how all of the participants in the improvisation interpreted that in their own work. So there's even a little moment when not only do the artists and the audience members come together in a wonderful community of improvisation, of musicking, of sound arting together in real life, but the city of Berlin joins in with a siren, um, as Berlin is wont to do. This is a city that has its own sound, and we love it. So, once again, from me at Sounds Curious, we look forward to hearing you next time enjoy this final improvisation and imagine yourself on a cold January night in Berlin with a room full of people, some of whom have known each other for years and some of whom have never met making music together. We'll catch you next time.
Thank <laughs> you. 
perfect. Thank you. <laughs>